Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the Oasis. We're glad you're here with us in the auditorium. We're glad there are those of you who are joining us from your homes this morning. Before the message this morning, just a couple quick reminders. This Wednesday, 7 o'clock, is our worship night here at the church. Uh, under Nicole's leadership, we hope that many of you will be able to come out Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, for a night of worship. And then don't forget, coming up for our children, on Friday, October the 28th, is our annual Trunk or Treat. We've been doing this for several years now, and we just it keeps growing in numbers. Last year, I think we had over 125 or so here, uh, children. So uh, we just sign up online uh, if you're interested in being a part of that. This morning, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, looking at the story of Jesus, a story that inspires passion, inspires wonder, and inspires witness. And this morning, we want to begin in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. There are two scenes that are going to take place in this passage this morning. One takes place in a home of someone we don't know whose home it is. And then the other one takes place in the home of the tax collector, Levi. And that's where our activity uh, is going to be centered this morning. But before we get into that this morning, I want to say this Preliminarily, from now on, Jesus is going to start experiencing human opposition to himself and his ministry, okay? This sort of marks the beginning. We've already seen the devil coming at him. We've already seen spiritual opposition. He's already been tempted by the devil, and that will certainly continue as well. But today marks sort of the beginning of human opposition against Jesus and his ministry. And throughout the Gospels, uh, you have the religious leaders of Israel referred to in many different ways. Here in this passage, they're referred to as Pharisees, as experts in the law, as teachers of the law. Later on, they're called scribes, they're called Sadducees. They all make up what's called the Sanhedrin sort of the ruling body, if you will, the ruling authority of, of religious Israel. Uh, for, for the sake of our study from here on out, I'm not going to go down through each of those different sort of factions within that. I'm just going to call them the religious leaders of Israel, okay? That makes it simple for all of us. They are the religious leaders of Israel, okay? The second thing I want us to note before we even get into the passage this morning is there is a phrase that Luke is going to begin to use today, and it's found actually over in verse 21, and it's, it's said by the religious leaders, but I want to stop after a certain point, and the phrase is this, if you're looking at verse 21, they say, who is this man? Who is this man? It's something that Luke wants us to think about, because he'll use that phrase for the rest of his gospel. As Jesus begins to talk, as Jesus begins to do things, people start to wonder, who is this man? And it's a question that all of us is going to have to answer. Who is Jesus? Who is he to us? You know, later on in the gospel, Jesus turns to Peter and says, hey, Peter, 
who do the crowds say that I am? And then he turns to Peter and said, now, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? And we all have to answer that. Who is Jesus to us? Do we know him in any way? Do we know him as our Savior? Do we know him as a disciple? Are we following him? Are we the fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus known as a disciple? Where are we with Jesus? And hopefully our study of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke will inspire all of us to want to get closer to Jesus no matter where we are with Jesus because we all can get closer to Jesus no matter what our walk is with Jesus. Or if you have no walk with Jesus, that walk with Jesus can begin today. It can begin today. So let's go back to verse 17 and pick it up there in Luke chapter 5. Luke tells us that it was on a certain day as Jesus was teaching the word of God. Let's stop there. Normal day, right? Nothing really special. Oh, yeah. Any day with Jesus is no ordinary day. When you and I are walking with Jesus and when we are following Jesus and when we are discovering more about Jesus and engaging Jesus and experiencing him, there's never an ordinary day in our life. There will always be something special about spending our days here on earth, every last one of them, with Jesus. Because there's no one like Jesus. We've certainly worshipped and sung about that today. There's no one like him. And then we also note in verse 17 again that Luke is pointing out that Jesus was always teaching the word of God. One of his priorities of his ministry was teaching people the word of God. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set men free. And so he was always trying to bring people to the truth of God. But then we also see there in verse 17 that Luke tells us that from all over Israel, from all the villages of Galilee and Judea and even Jerusalem, here comes the religious leaders of Israel, and they are sitting nearby Jesus. And why are they there? They are there to size Jesus up. They are there to begin to critically assess Jesus and his ministry. You ever had someone in your life who wanted you to fail? I have. In fact, in every stop of my ministry, I've had a few people who they would actually be glad if I fell or I failed. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? But it happens, and it's maybe happened to you. Where there are people just sitting back, just watching and waiting for you to fail in some way. That's what Jesus was experiencing throughout his earthly ministry with the religious leaders of Israel. Think about it. They now were going to follow him everywhere he went, and they weren't following him because they loved him. They weren't following him because they believed in him. They were following him to literally critically assess everything that he did and said. Talk about getting hounded. You ever feel like that there are those people that just sort of are sitting there in your life and they're just waiting for you to do something wrong and pounce on it? 
then you can understand where Jesus was at at this time in his ministry. You see, these religious leaders were being stirred up by, at this point, Jesus' popularity with the people. He was attracting crowds. And up to this point, you know, they were sort of the end-all, be-all. They, the, they were the ones that people would flock to and, and look to. And now Jesus is drawing people away from them. They don't like it. And so they want to go and check this Jesus out to see what he's all about and to size him up. Now, at the end of verse 17, Luke does tell us that on this day, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. That's going to set up what happens next, right? Luke is sort of preparing us for what happens next. And what the end of this verse also then teaches is that while Jesus was here, even though he is God and he never ceased to be God, that while he was here on earth, he laid aside the independent use of his attributes as God and allowed the Spirit of God to be the one that directed him. So when it said, the power of the Lord was with him to heal that day, then he's saying, I did not use my power independently or indiscriminately of being led by the power of the Spirit. Because again, Jesus is here not only to present to us God and his love for us and wanting to have a relationship with, but to give us an example, a model to follow. And we've seen that. So then we read in verse 18, it was just about that time that a group of men come. And they're carrying a friend of theirs on a stretcher because he's paralyzed. He cannot walk. And it says at the end of verse 18 that they were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus. That's a great ministry. Wouldn't it be great to be known as the people who just brought people to Jesus? I want you to picture that. When was the last time you brought somebody to Jesus? See, sometimes that's all Jesus is asking of us. Not for us to be the answer, not to, for us to figure it all out, not, but just, just to bring people to Jesus, just, just, to, just to say, hey, have you thought about Jesus? And then let Jesus take over from there. That's a wonderful picture. I want us to think about that as we live our lives. That maybe we could be like these stretcher barriers, that, that we're, just, we're just trying to bring people to Jesus and just sit them in front of him. And it doesn't even have to be necessarily physical. Many of you have a full-time ministry of prayer, of intercessory prayer, of literally, like these stretcher bears, bringing people before Jesus and saying, Jesus, would you help them? Would you heal them? Would you bless them? Would you do this for them? That's a ministry. That's a ministry. All of us are better served when we bring people to Jesus. We are better off when we come to Jesus and when we place ourselves before him. But then it says in the next verse that there was such a crowd that they could not get into the house where Jesus was teaching in a conventional way. So the Bible tells us they go up to the roof, they take some tiles off of the roof, and they lower this man down on the stretcher, 
and they put him right in front of Jesus, where he obviously can't be missed. And you can imagine, right? Put, try to put yourself in this scene. The, the house is packed. I mean, it's just full of people, and there's people even spilling out outside trying to hear what Jesus is saying as he's inside teaching. And all of a sudden, while Jesus is teaching, you hear this noise. And all of a sudden, you know, dust and dirt and stuff starts to fall down. And all of a sudden, you see light, and these tiles of the roof is coming off, and all of a sudden, this man on this stretcher is being lowered down. And if you were there that day, you'd probably go, what in the world is going on here, right? But Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And the Bible tells us in verse 20 that when they lowered this man who was paralyzed and placed him right in front of Jesus, that the first thing Jesus is said to have done was that he saw their faith. Verse 20, that's key. Let's stop there for a minute. Jesus saw their faith. That tells us several things. First of all, that tells us that faith is not just something that's internal or invisible. Yes, you and I can say, I believe and I have faith and I'm trusting and it's, it's my, you know, that internal trust and belief that no one can see. But true faith, true faith, always will express itself externally and visibly. It cannot be kept invisible. And that's what the Bible's declaring here. That whatever faith or trust or belief that these men had in Jesus, it was now being visibly expressed. And Jesus saw it. We need to then ask ourselves the question, is Jesus seeing my faith in him? And maybe even more important, because that's why Jesus leaves us here after we come to faith, are other people in my life seeing my faith in Jesus? Are other Christians seeing my faith in Jesus being visibly expressed? Are other people who aren't Christians seeing my faith visibly expressed in Jesus? Because it's very possible for us to live a life of faith and yet never externally, visibly express it the way we could or should. And I think that's being drawn out here. Jesus wants us. And notice, in a sense, he's pleased. He's, he's applauding uh, the faith of these people. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. What is he really pleased with when it says he saw their faith. The fact that they were up on a roof, you know, so we all should now climb up on our roofs, that, you know, that, no. You see, faith is literally responding to the leading of God every step of the way. And so what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, you all who were carrying this man to this house before me, you were being led to do everything that you did, including when you were given an obstacle, going up on the roof and lowering him down in front of me. Every step that you took, you were being led by God to do it. And I see that. I see that. 
And that goes all the way back to even before they got to the house, the fact that they knew that Jesus had the power to heal their friend and help their friend. And so the day that, that at some time that day when they all left their houses and they took a hold of their friend and put him on that stretcher and they started off toward Jesus, that was the beginning of that march of faith. And Jesus saw that as God. And then when they got to the house and they saw that it was so crowded that they couldn't get in a conventional way, them not stopping and being discouraged and just throwing up their hands and saying, well, we couldn't get in the way we wanted to, so I guess it's not God's will that we get into him. Even the faith to keep on going and persisting and enduring and, and that perseverance, that was part of the faith that they were responding to as well as God led them to don't give up. Don't give up. That may be where God is saying to you today. Maybe you've hit a wall and God is saying to you, don't give up. Keep responding to my leading and go another way. There's another way besides the way that you are taking. And as you respond to that, that's living by faith as well. And then once they got there, I'm sure there was that thing of, this is somebody else's house and we're going to tear it up. You know what? There's times where it's worth it. And I'm sure Jesus and, and all those men figured out a way to either repair the roof or, or restore the roof or pay to put a new roof on or whatever. But, but in Jesus' mind, it was more important that this man be let down than that house be left intact. And that was all by the leading of God as well. Something for us to consider at times, you know? And then I love this. The next thing that Jesus says in verse 20 is so profound because he doesn't heal the man first. He turns to this man and he says, friends, friend, your sins are forgiven, released, sent away. Do you know that there is nothing more important for any of us as a human being to hear than the words from Jesus, friend, your sins are forgiven. Have you heard that in your life? Are you here today and you know that there was a time in your life where through your trust and belief in what Jesus did and who Jesus was that you heard God say to you, your sins are gone, forgiven. Past, present, future. There's nothing better than a human being knowing our sins are forgiven. Do you know that today? Are you rejoicing in the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ? Now, obviously, these words of Jesus, oh boy, did it stir up some things. Because those same religious leaders that have been there to size Jesus up and to critically assess him and his ministry, they start thinking to themselves, it says, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know what? They're right about that. There is no forgiveness apart from God. God is the only one who can set us free 
and forgive our sins. And hopefully everyone here has experienced that forgiveness. If you haven't, all you need to do is come and trust Jesus and he'll forgive you too. There's no amount of sin. There's no kind of sin or whatever that's too much or too great for God to forgive any of us of all of our sin. And it is only God. They got that right. The only problem they had was in their minds at this point, Jesus was certainly not God, which is why they said, you're uttering blasphemy. Now, notice in the Bible, though, it says they never said these words out loud. It says they were thinking them to themselves. And then Jesus says to them, why are you thinking such hostile thoughts? Which tells us something, doesn't it? Because he's God, he knows our thoughts. He knows our thoughts today. He always knows our thoughts. We don't have to say a word. Jesus knows even our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He knows what's on our hearts without us ever saying anything. That alone should have been something that the religious leaders should have caused them to sit up and take notice of. We didn't say anything, and now he's questioning us about these hostile thoughts that we're having. How does he know we have hostile thoughts? How does he know what we're thinking if he's not who he claimed to be? And then he says to them, let me ask you a question, religious leaders. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Well, obviously, the easier thing to say is sinner be forgiven. Why? Because there's no visible evidence of that. That's something that takes place invisibly. So anybody can say anything. You don't have to have any proof of that. But then Jesus goes on to say, but so that you may know, so that you may have clear evidence that the Son of Man, which is who I am, has authority on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to tell this man who's paralyzed, stand up and walk. And he says to the man, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. And the Bible says immediately this man stood up, took the stretcher on which he was lying, and went home glorifying God, praising, celebrating, magnifying God. Here's a man who was paralyzed, who could not walk. And because he was brought to Jesus, he not only left with his sins forgiven, he left healed and whole. And by the way, did you connect the dots yet that Jesus healed this man because of the faith of his friends? And I believe that this man had faith in Jesus. That's why he allowed his friends to bring him to Jesus, which is why Jesus also said, friend, your sins are forgiven, because that's the most important issue. The most important issue isn't that we get healed physically before we get healed spiritually. And that's why Jesus forgave his sins before he physically healed the man. An incredible miracle that Jesus did. And the Bible tells us in verse 26 that all of them were filled with astonishment, bewilderment, they were amazed and they were all glorifying God and they were all filled with awe and wonder and they said to one another, we've seen incredible things today. Yeah, 
Because guess what? When you start walking with Jesus and encountering Jesus and following Jesus, you're always going to see incredible things and experience incredible things because there's no one like Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants to inspire all of us to do, to come along with him and live life with him. Because when we live life with Jesus and when we unfold for ourselves the story of Jesus and immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus, we will always be filled with awe and wonder and astonishment and amazement. And we will always be able to say, we've experienced incredible things with our God. Because that's who God is. He's always doing incredible things. And that's what he did that day at that house that we don't know whose house that was. How cool was that, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd have been okay to have my roof ripped off if I knew my house was the house where all that took place. I'd be okay with that. Jesus was in my house. He forgave this man his sins. This man's going to be in heaven one day, and we're all going to meet this man that was on that stretcher and paralyzed one day. I don't care if I had to clean up a a little bit of dust and dirt on my floor and, and repair my roof. I saw Jesus heal this man, and this man walked out, who walked into my house on a stretcher, if you will, with the help of others, and he walked out on his own two feet. That was worth my roof getting tore up a little bit. God wants us to have that same mentality. Sometimes God turns our life a little topsy-turvy and upside down. And, you know, we don't like it because, you know, we like our routine. I get that. We like our little comfort zone. But but sometimes in order to experience the things God wants, we've got to let go of all that. And we've just got to invite God in and say, God, you do whatever you want to do. I'm just glad that I can be a part of it. And then we come to verse 27. And it says, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. We probably know him more by his Greek name, Matthew, the one who wrote one of the Gospels. And it says that he saw him. You know what that word means? To see with interest and intention. Jesus sees us. And he always is looking at every human being with interest and intention. And he was drawn to this tax collector. Can I say something here? Tax collectors were downright hated in that time. Hated by their own people, the Jews, because they were looked at as being traitors to their own people, the Jews for collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, and they were looked at as traitors to God. Because in their mind, if you're a traitor to God's people, then you're also a traitor to the God of that people. So the Jews wanted nothing to do with these other Jews who agreed to be tax collectors. And obviously, one of the perks of being a tax collector, even though it came with a bunch of stuff, was that they did make very good money. They lived better than most of their fellow Jews. And that maybe was another reason. There was a little jealousy and envy there as well as far as the material and physical things that their job allowed them to have as a tax collector. But Jesus saw this man named Levi and he says to this man, follow me. That's what Jesus wants all of us to do. 
to go from just being one who believes in him as our Savior and who's saved and who's a Christian to one who's a fully devoted, fully dependent follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he's calling Levi a tax collector. Ooh, to be a follower, to actually be, we're going to know, one of the 12 disciples. And you know what? Levi, it says, got up, followed him, leaving everything behind in order to pursue Jesus. Here was a man who was ready. Here was a man who had been prepared by the Holy Spirit, who was just looking for someone to come along and invite him to some kind of new life. Because even though he had everything, maybe materially and physically, there was still, again, that hole in his heart and that, that hole in his soul that nothing could fill. And he had sat at that tax office for years collecting taxes, and yet he was probably thinking for so many days, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to my existence than just me going into my job every day and putting in time. And when Jesus came, there was that perfect timing. And that's the way God works. He sees who's, who's ready and, and who's, you know, they just need that little coaxing, that little invitation. And here comes Jesus at that perfect time and says, will you follow me? And man, Levi was out the door like a, quickly. And he didn't matter it was like, just like the disciples last week who left their fishing business. It was all about Jesus. Now becoming your disciple is my number one priority in my life. And, and we can see the reality already of, of this invitation and, and Jesus being open to a man that nobody wanted anything to do with. Again, a man who was ostracized, a man who was uh, isolated, a man who was cast off by a society, and yet Jesus took time for him and saw him. This man threw a big reception for Jesus in his house, it says, and invited all these people to come to be with Jesus and to meet him. Again, just using his home now as a vehicle to just gather people together and say, hey, I want you to meet somebody who changed my life. His name is Jesus, and I'll never be the same ever again. Now, obviously, it says in the Bible that many of the people who attended this reception for Jesus were tax collectors and other people sitting at the table with Jesus. Can you see this? Jesus is there. He's having a good time. I'm sure at times in the evening he was probably laughing and just sharing and just having a good time, just eating and drinking with all of these people, all of these sinners. And again, the religious leaders are right there. And notice it says that they complained to his disciples. They didn't have the courage to come up to Jesus to his own face and say anything to Jesus. They were complaining to Jesus' disciples. Why do you all eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know why? Because Jesus came for sinners, thank God. That's why. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. I don't know about you, but I'm glad God loves sinners. I'm glad God came to save sinners and, and God wants to be with sinners because without God wanting to be with sinners, we'd all be lost for all of eternity because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And Jesus is right. You see, the religious leaders of Israel, they thought that, that they had to physically stay away from sinners because, you know, they, they'd catch something, you know. We, we can't hang around those bad people like that. That's soiling even our reputation. And notice Jesus' response in verse 31 and 32. Jesus answered them. Isn't that great? They complained to the disciples, again, probably out of Jesus' hearing, but because Jesus knows our thoughts and all that's going on and what we say, and maybe though, you know, he doesn't physically not present, Jesus answered them and he says to them, no one who is well needs a physician, do they, or a doctor? Only those who are sick. That's powerful. You know why? Because we get that. Every time we go to the doctor, there's three things that we know for sure. I'm sick, I need help, and I can't help myself. And that's why Jesus goes on in verse 32 to say, I did not come to call the righteous or the self-righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. I came to call those who are willing to admit they have a need to come to me and let me transform and change their life. Because that's what repentance is. Change through being with Jesus. Because that's what Jesus will do. He'll bring change and transformation into our life. I hope every last one of us here today is willing to admit our needs before God. Because that's the only way we're going to get help. If we're so prideful that we never want to admit that we have needs and that we have issues and all of this, then God cannot help us in that condition. The only way God can help is when we're willing to admit we're sick, we need healed, we're, we're you know, we've got issues. God, I need your help. That, that's when God can step in when we're willing to humble ourselves and say, God, I need your help. And maybe today, God is just reminding all of us, it's okay. We should never be ashamed. We should never feel, you know, bad about admitting our need. Because if we're all honest, every last one of us, including everyone who's watching on, on uh, live stream this morning. Every last one of us needs God. Every last one of us. And we need him all the time. All the time. And then it says in verse 33 that they said to him, oh, we got some more issues with you. Why do the disciples of John frequently fast and pray, and why do even the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray, but you all continue to just eat and drink? Now let's talk about that for just a minute. It's not that Jesus is anti-fasting here, right? In fact, if you read what Jesus says, he's basically saying there's a time and place for fasting, and this is not the time. It's not the time. The whole idea of them even knowing that other people were fasting, I have a problem with. And I think God does too. Because remember, God says in his word, when you fast, that should be between you and God. And you shouldn't be going around trying to draw attention to yourself. Hey, I just want to let all of you people know how, how hungry I am because I'm fasting to get closer to the Lord. That's all about us if we're going to do it that way. God says, when you fast... Just make that between me and you because fasting is all about intensifying our focus upon God at times. And what Jesus then uses is this illustration of this wedding and especially the wedding 
reception. He says, look, do wedding guests, are they going to fast while the bridegroom is present? He said, no. He said, there's coming a time when the bridegroom, me, is going to be taken away. And at that time, they can fast. But now's not the time or the place to fast. Now's the time to celebrate. Now's the time to enjoy my physical presence with my people. But there will come a time where fasting will be appropriate. But now's not the time. You know what this is also pointing out? Jesus is different. And Jesus does things different from customary practice. They were basically saying, why don't you do it, Jesus, like the rest of us do it? Well, guess what? Jesus doesn't do things like the rest of us. And I'm so glad he doesn't. But it was because he was different that he was being criticized. And you and I have to get over that. Because there are times in our life where we'll have people around say, why don't you do things like they do it? I remember in just these last couple years, I would have people come, why, aren't you, why doesn't your church handle the pandemic the way all these other churches are? Why aren't you doing it the way, you know, because here's the problem. We just need to do what God's asking us to do. And at times that means we're not going to conform to what everybody else is doing, including other Christians. It's okay to be different. If you're here and you think you're different, God bless you. Jesus was different too. And Jesus took criticism for being different and not conforming to what everybody else did. You stand your ground. You be who God wants you to be before him and don't let that criticism change who God made you to be. And then Jesus ends this passage with this parable. And I want you to note the repetition of the words no one in verse 36, 37, and 39. He says, no one takes a patch of material off a new garment and sews it on an old one. No one puts new wine into old wineskins because that doesn't work. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. And here's why. Because they say, and here's the key, they say the old is good enough. Oh, oh, mark those words. That's powerful. See, Jesus came to bring something new and something fresh and something different. But many of the people, including the majority of religious leaders, didn't want it. The old guard didn't want to change. And Jesus was saying, when I come on the scene, change is going to happen. And, and even today, you know why many people keep a distance from Jesus, even Christians, and why they never become a disciple? Because... Two things. One, they don't want to change. They want things to stay the same, and that will never happen when you become a follower of Jesus. And two, we become complacent, and we settle for good enough. Jesus is, in a sense, saying, what I will offer you is the best. It's better than where you are. But when you are so focused on the old wine that you're drinking, and you've come to a place in your mind and your heart where you say, ah, uh, it's good enough. I'm good. I don't need to go any further with God. I don't need to experience anything better. I'm good right here. Then that completely shuts down the process that God wants us to continue on. Not because he shut it down, because we shut it down. Because we don't want to go any further with God. Where we are is good enough. I, and 
Can I tell you? I don't know about you. I hear that all the time from Christians. Even those who are, you know, saved, it's like, or, well, Christians are saved, but they'll say something like, yeah, I, I know I've accepted Jesus as my Savior and my sins are forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. That, I'm, that's good enough. Oh, my goodness. That's good enough. You've drunk the old wine and you're settling. God has so much more and has his best and you're willing to stay where you are because you don't want your life to look any different than it does now and you don't want to change and you don't want Jesus to come in and change anything and so you continue to drink the old wine and just say, it's good enough. I'm good. And maybe that's where some of you are today. You've gotten to a certain point in your walk with God and you're just sort of settling saying, you know what, I'm good. I'm just going to stay here and hold on till Jesus comes. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you new wine. I want to give you experiences that, that are the absolute best, but you're only going to experience those if you're willing to not settle and keep on following me. Where are we at? That's the question. Where are we at? You know, through our worship and through our time in God's word today, we've experienced Jesus. And when you and I truly experience Jesus, we're going to be in the same place that they were in verse 26. We're going to be left astonished. We're going to be left glorifying God, filled with awe, and saying we've experienced incredible things today. I don't know about you, but I hope that there's no one who's listening today or who's here today who is saying th those words to God. God, where I'm at is good enough. I'm just going to stay right here. I hope that all of us will say, no, nope. I know you've got more for me, God. I know that there's even better things ahead, and I'm willing to follow you all the way to the end, to the end. I'm going to ask our worship team to come now. And I'm going to ask us to stand and just close in prayer before we spend time worshiping the Lord. God is giving us a call today, folks. He's giving us that same call that he gave to Levi at that tax booth that day. He's saying to all of us, will you follow me? Will you follow me? And like Levi, I hope that all of us are willing to say, yep, Lord, I'm following and I'm leaving everything behind. You are now my number one pursuit. Following Jesus is my top priority of my life because there's nothing greater than following Jesus every day. Father, we pray today that, Lord, our hearts would be ready to keep following you. Lord, as we've been reminded in this passage of Scripture today, Lord, you know our thoughts. You know our hearts. You know where each of us, where we stand before you right now. And I even pray for maybe that one who's here who's never heard from you. Friend, your sins are forgiven. God, what a wonderful day to come to know Jesus as their Savior, and to hear those words from God himself, friend, your sins are forgiven.
God, I pray today that you would do a work and continue to do a work in each of us, God, that we might, Lord, just be filled with awe and wonder at you, Jesus, and the fact that you love sinners and you came for sinners and you want to help us as sinners, but we just need to be willing to admit we have the need. God, may we be willing to admit that today. In Jesus' name, amen.